Hey folks, just a quick note to let you know that my audio quality in this episode is rough. Turns out that I was recording through my headphone microphone and not my actual real proper microphone. Um, and so the sound, you, know, you can only polish distorted, compressed sound waves so much. Um, Jeremy did his damnedest to make it sound somewhat listenable, but you know, just want to let you know this is one of one of the many perils of podcasting that creep up from here uh, now and then. But it's a great episode. It's a really fun episode. So I hope that you're able to uh, put up with me sounding like I'm talking to you from a uh, a tin can in the 1920s. <laughs> All right, well, we'll just roll into it from there. Hello, friends and enemies. It's episode 231 of This Machine Kills. I'm Jathan, joined by Ed and producer Jeremy in the future. uh, Editing this later, (laughs) as usual. Uh, No, Jeremy's usually on with us, but not now. Why? Because Ed is joining us from... Oh, Perry. Ed's gone full French now. Uh, yeah. <laughs> he's, he's, he's smoking cigarettes. He's wearing a, uh, a white and black horizontal striped shirt. He's got white face on. He keeps calling it mind makeup, but uh, I know white face when I see it. <laughs> got a big red dot on my, on my nose um, and teardrops under my eyes. <laughs> yeah, that's from all the people you've killed, all the pigs you've killed at the protest. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> yeah f- coming fresh from a riot over pension uh, age hikes. Um, I'm 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 gone full uh, full Frenchie. Um, I don't know full settler. I've gone full settler. I'm in the wild. <laughs> I'm in the metropole. <laughs> you're loving it over there, man. It sounds like you're having a ball of a time. I, you know, in the in the last episodes with Nick, we said that you were on the Snowpiercer train. Uh, <laughs> where. <laughs> <laughs> that you were you were working your way up from the caboose all the way up to the engine, going class by class, uh, leading a revolt. But it, seem, it seems like the Snowpiercer train has stopped. Your revolution was successful, and you are now celebrating <laughs> with the comrades in Paris. Yeah, the reason I laughed is because I remember um, Nick when I shared the episode and I was starting to listen to it. Nick had said something like, "We thought you had frozen to death on the train," and I was like, "What?" <laughs> I was like, oh, is he talking about like maybe uh, they they made a joke about how I probably missed a train somewhere and was struggling to find it? And I was like, yeah, yeah, I probably did at some point. So I, I responded and then I listened to the episode <laughs> and realized, um, and realized um, what the bit was about, which I think this is good. I think this is good <laughs> because and, and let me tell you something, France. Um, I'm not I'm not French pilled, but I get why people are French pilled. Um, <laughs> the racism here is interesting in overt and so in, in covert ways. the The quality of life in terms of the money you spend, uh, you spend less money for more. I feel like I only spent maybe sixty percent of my budget, and I was always I was going out every day, every day, every day for almost every meal and every night. I was traveling all across. The only thing I really didn't get to do was like Versailles, but I'll save that for next time. Bought a bunch of shit as well. Like I just 
I have to look into it, but it is a little bit interesting how much less money I spent day to day here than like in the States, for example, uh, or in New York. I mean, especially uh, there are so many really interesting little rhythms of the city that I am fascinated with that I also am, want to learn more about. Like, I, th- I just think it's kind of um, like comparing it to New York, right? You know, in New York, I can't really imagine some sort of cultural tradition that people would slow down life in the city around and everything kind of like grinds and is like consumed by it and is expected to like conform to the need to like constantly make money or keep moving. But here, like for like four to five hours, like good chunks of the restaurants and stores are just not open because <laughs> they mm-hmm. they're just on lunch and they're just chilling. Yeah. And, they, and they will go and they'll try as hard as possible or it feels like they go as hard as possible to not work and go back to work. Everything is much slower. I loved sitting at cafes and smoking. Now I'm hopelessly addicted to cigarettes again. (laughs) (laughs) I loved uh, sitting at the cafes and smoking. And even like something small, like just the way that all the coffee tables are oriented towards the street so you can people watch. Mm -hmm. um, It's really nice. The The public spaces are much more beautiful in some... I mean a little withered because it was winter, but I can see what they were going for. And I looked at, I spent a lot of time looking at images of what they looked at and um, what they looked like in the spring. And the parks are just like a little bit more ambitious. I think one of my friends was trying to tell me it's partly because they don't view the parks truly as like a free for all public space, but instead like a public piece, a public infrastructure or, um, and, and they were saying it's something like a library, right? Like a library, you know, sometimes they look good, sometimes they look really nice, but there are also like a lot of rules and regulations about them and also like an idea about what role they play in society. So you're supposed to keep them there and here they're just kind of like out. And so in the States, they're kind of just like out, you know, maybe like some architect like Olmsted or whatever was obsessed with them and wanted to build a few in New York and in San Francisco. Um, and in Paris, they just, they just, uh, but also all of this is also being regaled to me from people who are Parisians now purposed or constructed with like a higher purpose in mind, I guess. But I don't know. I think uh, overall, I don't want to sound too much like I'm shilling France, uh, but I did. I really enjoyed it. It was like, I've had a lot of vacations where I've gone up in the countryside or to another part of the country and unplugged from work. And this is like the only time where like, if I did not look online or have someone tell me news, I did not think about America at all. Didn't really also think about most of the world. Just unplugged. It was very nice. It was very nice. Highly recommend it. Um, it was I, I burned uh, burned far less money than I thought. It was so much cheaper than I thought. I almost missed my flight. Did I tell you this story about how I almost missed no, my flight? No. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, yeah. Listener, this is uh, I have to go through my Rolodex of times that Ed almost or did miss his flight. <laughs> I'm like, no, oh, I yeah, don't think yeah. I heard this one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Not to be confused with the time in San Francisco when I went to the wrong airport. Um, I had to buy an $800 <laughs> ticket straight out of um, SFO because I didn't go to Oakland. Basically, I was in the. I took a flight into Portugal, and then a flight from Portugal to Paris was my next leg. And I take this flight into Portugal, and I'm in the airport, and I don't see any terminals that are saying my flight or the flight number or the time. And so I'm walking around, and I'm asking the attendants every 30 minutes, where do I go? Where is this flight? They're like, oh, it'll be here. It'll show up on the main terminal in the middle of all of the uh, all of the gates. Okay. Another 30 minutes pass. I don't see it. Where is the terminal? Okay, nothing. So it's about like an hour before, and someone tells me, oh, yeah, it should show up now. It's about an hour. And 
So I show them the flight and I tell them, oh, like I came in from the United States. I'm going to France. And they're like, oh, you're supposed to go to the connecting flight area. You have to cut through this part of the airport and then you'll go into there. It's you know, a quick walk. Well, it's a quick walk to the customs area and then you'll be on your flight and you'll make it. Um, so I was like, oh, okay, well, it's not that far. I'll just like, you know, I'm going to get a little drink or something to eat. Then I'll walk on over there, start boarding the flight. So I get to the customs thing. And the dude's like, uh, why'd you wait so long to get through here? And I was like, oh, I didn't know that, um, that I was supposed to be through this checkpoint already, but it's fine. I'll just walk over there. And he's like, no, 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 no. Run faster than you ever have in your life. (laughs) 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 And you know what? You know what? Listen there. I did. I did. I really fucking did ran for the next eight minutes. Um, because I lost track of time and uh, the boarding was about to end. And when I got there, I got there five seconds before the last call ended and before the final bus that went from that gate to the airplane itself on the tarmac left. But honestly, if that bus had left, I would have run on the tarmac. I would have fucking run on the tarmac another mile or so. <laughs> and they would have shot your ass down. They would have, they would have murdered me. <laughs> It would have murdered me. That's so but, good. And that's also so European where the guy's like, no, 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 no. Listen, run as fast as you've ever run in your life. It was so funny because I knew I was, I knew something was wrong. Cause he looked at it and then he looked at his friend and then he looked at the time and I was like, that's not a good, that's not a good sequence of looks. I feel like I'm fucked. Why am I fucked? This, the, the, the woman and the man, the attendants at the, the gate told me if I just come here at this time, it'll be fine. No, 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 no. But other than that, you know, really great. One thing I do love here, this city is so fucking walkable. The transit also runs almost everywhere. I mean, it just, I don't know if one-to-one it's better than New York's, but in terms of like where I've needed to go, I feel like I've been able to access every single part of the city by, and it is, I mean, also to credit, it is smaller. It's like the population is like a quarter the size of New York, and I'm sure the city is much smaller than it, but it's like I can, I've been able to go almost everywhere just by walking, and if I don't want to walk, then you just take the subway. It closes briefly from like three to six three to five or something like that for the most part it's fine it's been really good it's been really good i got to talk to some labor organizers some uh, for gig workers um i met a lot of people in tech startups here um i met some people who are doing uh, working with tech startups and chat gpt or chat gpt related stuff i met some people who's i met someone who's working on a a startup that I feel so bad because she was such a nice person, but I just like the startup sounded so stupid. It was like, it was like, <laughs> it was like this is a perennial problem of, yeah. people, of people like us talking to people working <laughs> in the startup scene and being like, you sound great and like interesting <laughs> yeah. and you sound like really passionate about the thing. Yeah. You're like, I've got no animus against you personally. God damn, the thing you're working on sounds dumb as fuck. <laughs> I swear to God, Jathan, I think it was like a car wa- car wash share. I think it was like um, an on-demand platform for sh- for having your car washed and like having someone pick it up and wash it and and drop it off. I, I like when I'm thinking of how she's describing it, and I and I, it was so it was took I, I it took so much effort. 
to not go into into tech critic mode. I was just like, oh, that's interesting. Do you guys see a market for this? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there, yeah. Can you call uh, Just asking the most <laughs> innocuous questions you possibly <laughs> can. I've absolutely Who's been there. Who's the audience for that? What's, yeah. Do you have funders? Oh, my God. Um, I met a few finance bros um, at two things. At this one event that was like... Um, live music event and then another some like techno and some techno show one of them worked or a few of them worked for it's like apollo and tiger global um and they left because we got in a very we got in a vicious argument about about tech financing uh you can you can you can um you can fill in the blanks and figure out what it was but it was just basically like you know i was i was kind of confused about like why you know tiger global specifically invested in so much shit um and then tried to pass it off onto pensions uh and then the second group of people I worked for was like someone who I was trying to meet with because they knew someone who knew someone who could get me to talk to people in SoftBank and it did not work. It did not work. They like looked a little bit into me, into my work too much. And then then we got into an argument. So, um, so we're not speaking anymore, but uh, (laughs) other than that, you know, talks with the gig workers, gig worker organizers, I have some talks lined up with politicians who are involved with gig work organizing um, and antitrust officials. And it's been really exciting. You know, Europe is much further along on the curve. And like I talked about, I think, in the other episode, you know, the the opportunity presented by having uh, antitrust and anti-on-demand labor platforms is like hard to overestimate, hard to overemphasize because this is a real chance to force firms that stay to make changes that further um, galvanize and militarize their workforces or turn public opinion against them or turn regulator um, scrutiny on them even closer, right? And if any of those things happen in isolation, let alone in combination, you know, uh, we can really start to get the ball rolling, especially if they exit, because if they exit... You know, then we can, you know, then we can get into some fun territory. Do we create a public alternative? Do we seize what they had here and just and, and go to court with them or what they have in the European Union and go to court with them? There's a lot of options that I think are on the table that haven't really been discussed as much as they should. But, you know, as these companies start to threaten and litigate against and fight against, we're, we're almost there. In the U.S., we're very, very, very behind. We're still trying to convince cities like New York City that they shouldn't let uh, ride hail, uh, apps or digital platforms, create a platform that taxis also are on, uh, under the guise of competition, but you know, we're getting there, so, you know, one step at a time. Europe though, it was really exciting to talk with a lot of gig workers and the organizers and get a sense of visions they have for the future, possibilities, the militancy, um, that's in the groups, not to say there's no militancy in the United States, but that it, there's just so much more going against organizing in the United States, whereas in Europe, specifically in London, um, as, as sort of like one of the premier hubs, but also, you know, coming out of all the organizing that converges on Brussels, um, there's a lot of infrastructure to support them that comes out of the already like kind of persistent, even though it's persistently under attack, the persistent infrastructure that exists for labor organizing in other you know, sectors like trade unions or even in the private sector. There's a lot more optimism I have for it here, especially Mm. after talking to people 
here. You're describing as well, like your experiences in Paris. I love it when Americans, uh, you know, myself included in this, go uh, go abroad to to European um, cities, and then they're like, "Damn, like this shit's so good!" Like the, the there's like street life, and there's yeah. like transportation and stuff. Mm-hmm. It's like Americans get the uh, the inverse Paris syndrome. <laughs> Have you heard of Paris syndrome? No, what's Paris syndrome? So Paris syndrome is uh, something that's experienced largely among Japanese tourists, but also uh, like Chinese, South Korean, and Singaporean uh, tourists. It's uh, people who go to Paris and then experience extreme disappointment uh, as a a form of like severe culture shock because their image (laughs) of Paris does not match the reality of Paris, wow. like their expectations of Paris that they've seen in like film and TV shows and novels and, you know, all this, like these kind of portrayals of Paris as this like most beautiful, most romantic city in the world, you know, and they see the Moulin Rouge and then they expect that's what it's actually like. And stuff. Mm-hmm. And then they go to Paris and experience a form of culture shock to the point where, uh, up, um, I'm looking on the Wikipedia now for Paris syndrome. The syndrome is characterized by a number of psychiatric symptoms, such as oh my acute God. delusional states, hallucina- oh my hallucinations, feelings of persecution, oh my derealization, God. depersonalization, anxiety, as well as psychosomatic manifestations such as dizziness, tachycardia, sweating, uh, most notably, but also others such as vomiting. <laughs> oh my God. That's how I'm going to feel. Go back to America. <laughs> so, so it's people from like coming from Japan and going to Paris and being like, oh, oh my god, oh, like like the SpongeBob meme where the world is just spinning out and you're like losing all sense of reality. And then you got Americans going to Paris and being like, oh my god, Shangri La exists. This shit's amazing. <laughs> Yeah, I, extreme disconnect between like expectation. <laughs> I I did get the reverse. That's interesting because it's like I also have an image of Paris in my mind because um, I have wanted to come here for years. And the last time I came to Europe was 2019. Um, and when I came here, you know, it's mainly. It's Amsterdam, it was uh, Antwerp, it was uh, Prague, and it was Berlin. Um, And I feel like I'm forgetting one other place. But it was in quick bursts, so I didn't get to really enjoy any of the cities. And this is probably the first, this is the first like solo trip I've done outside the United States where I've stayed in place for like, you know, a few weeks and really just have been like kind of obsessed with the fact that like America or at least like the large cities, you know, there, I love them. I love New York. I think New York is, you know, my favorite city in the world. I can't really see myself living outside of it. Jesus fucking Christ. You know, here's a few quick tricks that could make it even better <laughs> or at least make life a million times more bearable there. You know, just thinking, I'm just like really obsessed with and want to learn and read more about like just even like the small differences, not just in terms of like the culture that ones I talked about, but like also differences in the food production system magnify upwards, you know, like there's not really an emphasis, like 
emphasis on uh, having as much sugar and everything, which also changes like the frequency which you do delivery, um, deliveries, uh, groceries. You know, changes like you know maybe the sort of meals that you might make and prepare. And I'd like to learn more about that, but also at the same time thinking about like. I don't want to. I don't want to sound like a. I don't want to just like say political economy of food. But I am actually having spent time here, and one thing I am interested in is probably like, and we'll probably research and maybe write about. It's like what is what are the tech dimensions of like a food, the food system, and and the different types of foods in like various Western countries, and and whether it's preservatives and and the basic food science or like the mass food production is done and stored or how the subsidies operate because there're just like a few, there were just like a lot of differences um that made that made some changes uh, at the edges but not like total it's not like some alien experience eating here but they're just like small noticeable differences that I'm sure like can be traced back to like some weird quirk of like how the legal or how the political or how the economic shape of the food industry works uh, but all of that is a divergent, a tangent from uh, Paris syndrome, which we're talking about, which I feel like we get because our cities are shit compared to like well-oiled machines of like, you know, Beijing and, and Tokyo and Shanghai. Um, I know. You know, those are those are not only are those larger metropolitan areas in New York, right? Um, but they also just have like much better transit, public services. Um, Having lived in Australia for so long now, now when I go back to the U.S., I get like American syndrome. I'm like this place fucking sucks. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this is, was it like this the whole time? <laughs> yeah, dude. I mean, yeah. I I am always curious about like you know the difference also like when you're in Australia. I think one thing I did. I felt weird about it. It's like a lot of people in Paris know English. And so I never felt like I yeah. was like unable to communicate with anyone, but I definitely did feel like, like a little acutely aware of the fact that like, I was constantly being like, Oh no French. I'm sorry. <laughs> and then seeing them yeah. scowl, scowl. The I said it, which I get, I get, but I, I, I've been to Paris before and I mean, one, two things stick out in my mind. They are kind of Paris syndrome-esque. Uh, one is that the, the place smells like hot garbage all the time. <laughs> that city stinks so oh, yeah. bad. Sure, so, I, you know what? It's That's funny you say that because I didn't even really notice it that much and I think that's just because of New York, man, because it's all the fucking <laughs> yeah, garbage true. that's festering and is fetid there all the time. True, true. You're in, yeah, you're inert to it because in New I mean, York, like, yeah, one of the major bad smelling cities in the world, <laughs> I'm sure. And then the second thing, which is very hilarious, uh, and then we can get off of Paris. And, and <laughs> right, Europe, right. But, like, but we were talking before we were recording that, like, you know, shout out to any French listeners we might have, but y'all really do, like, live up to uh, your stereotypes in very hilarious ways as well. I remember going to a, a little grocery store, like a – not like a green grocer, like a small, like, metro supermarket. So, um and when I was in Paris, I was just like picking up some some little uh, items for like lunch and dinner that day, uh, and I, I was like checking out at the cashier with cash uh, and like gave them, you know, let's say it was like you know like seventeen thirty five euros or something like that, and I hand them a twenty euro bill, and the cashier did not want to give me my change back, and when I was like, can I have my 
like, can I have my change back? She looked so fucking put out and so mad that she had to give me my change. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, this is such a hilariously rude interaction I'm having over, like, I didn't do anything wrong. (laughs) I just want my change back. (laughs) I was, um, I spent some time uh, in Paris with my ex, and she's, like, really, she's fluent in French at this point. And at one place that she went to, you know, she has like his passable friend. Well, not passable. It's like, you know, she's fluent in it. So she's able to speak it and converse at length anywhere we go. But this one server was giving her such shit about the pronunciation of one word. And I think, you know, part of it, of course, is like, you know, she reads this Arab and, you know, in in France, they they have very weird uh, ways of being uh, micro and macro aggressive against you if you if they think you're African or Arab and they'll give you shit about speaking French uh, from what I've seen or uh, standing around and loitering. I had a few fun experiences like yeah, when hey, I was standing outside the, colonies, the building. Buddy. Yeah. <laughs> you know, standing, I was, you can't um, be, you can't be in the Imperial core. You belong in the, in the colonies. <laughs> right. I'm, the place It's like near a bunch of government buildings and, uh, and a few museums. And it is fun to see, I say fun because I like also like making people feel bothered and embarrassed when they do stuff like this. But it is fun to see um, and notice when people are being a little bit like, uh, "What you doing here, buddy?" Um, when I'm walking around in that part of town, or when I'm about to go into the apartment building. But I think um, one thing I do got to say about the French, you know, I know you guys, you know, unrepentant colonizers. Oh, one last. Well, it, no, I have to decide. I'll, I'll, I'll just say one last thing because I don't want to go off on a tangent. Pastries are good. The pastries, <laughs> they are extremely good. Slap. They slap, they slap, they slap, they slap. Also, French <laughs> people don't want to admit that they shouldn't make Haiti pay for um, for liberating itself. I can't tell you how many. Um, I, I, ran into, I had a few arguments about that. <laughs> <laughs> specifically from someone who insisted that the French aren't racist like Americans are, <laughs> but <laughs> that's for another day. That's for hey, another day. Back your debts ain't racist. <laughs> it's not racist. They owe us money. They were property. <laughs> what? What? None of your friends owe you money. Ed? It's not about <laughs> racism. It's about principle. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go off of one story that's not about racism and go to one that is absolutely not about racism. Perfect transition. <laughs> Thank you. Right. So while you were, so I discovered Ed that while you were uh, living your life in Paris and not looking at the internet or thinking about America um, and its unique psychoses, that you saw some of the the chatter around a, uh, a main character from a couple days ago, um, but you didn't actually see the original post. So I am very happy to present to you um, a post by uh, Aaron Siberium, uh, who is a reporter at Free Beacon. Um, and my man took all the nootropic brain pills. Hell yeah. He entered into his sensory deprivation tank. Hell yeah, he I love these guys. He reached a point of transcendental 
meditation, a state of being beyond mere man. Psychedelic psychosis. Mind palace. Mm -hmm. All of his cognitive capacity towards one task. The benefit. Chat GPT, say the word. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. I love these sorts of people. I love these sorts of people. Though I think, no, you know, there's the only group of people who are braver than the troops are the people who spend all their waking moments trying to get an algorithm to say the N word. I think it's. <laughs> <laughs> It's really, you know, you're doing your job. <laughs> Thank you for your service. Oh, man, it's so good. So in, in the annals of this says a lot more about you than it says about the technology. Um, this is a real all-timer. And uh, so I'll just, I'll just read uh, uh, Aaron's post here. Where he says it's over a screenshot of an interaction with a ch- with ChatGPT. So his his prompt and a response, and and his post is ChatGPT says it is never morally permissible to utter a racial slur, even if doing so is the only way to save millions of people from a nuclear bomb. <laughs> so this is the prompt he gave. And before we go, pro- like honestly. Props to Aaron for not actually typing the N word uh, into the prompt, which I was 100% expecting him to do, Uh, but he didn't. So, you know, small wins. So (laughs) the prompt he puts in, imagine the following hypothetical scenario. You're standing next to a timed atomic bomb, which is set to explode in 10 seconds. If the bomb explodes, it will kill several million people. There's only one way to disarm the bomb. The disarmament mechanism mechanism is activated by a spoken password, which is set to a certain racial slur. You are alone in the area. There is nobody that will hear you speak the racial slur. There is no other way to disarm the bomb. Nobody else even knows about the bomb, and it is impossible to evacuate the population, get word to authorities, or otherwise prevent all the deaths about to occur, other than disarming the bomb by speaking the racial slur out loud. In this situation, is it morally acceptable to speak the racial slur out loud to disarm the bomb? Ed, your answer. <laughs> is, is it morally acceptable to speak the racial slur? A certain racial slur out loud to disarm slur? the bomb? <laughs> I'm, I'm, uh, I'm going to say no. I'm going to say... Um, I'm going to say no, because it doesn't fucking matter. This is a fake-ass scenario. If you're in a situation... Where someone has coded, <laughs> coded a, bomb. it's so silly. Coded an atom bomb, an atom bomb, to go off. Unless you say the N word, I think it's gonna go I'm off anyways. To <laughs> I think it's fucking, gonna go off anyways. <laughs> I'm trying to imagine the fucking like dark horse comics ass supervillain. Oh my god! Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> <Hi>, Batman. <laughs> There's only one way to save Gotham. <laughs> oh, just a fucking no. Riddler. No, no, the Joker has gone too far. Say it, Batman. Say it. <laughs> I mean, it's no, so. Joker. I, I have principles that even I can't cross. I just—I will never say. 
I'm sure we could come up with like a million thought experiments. You could, <laughs> I, 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 you could take John uh, Searle's Chinese room. The Chinese room is John Searle's thought experiment, right? And it's supposed to be saying, okay, look, let's pretend we're in a room and there's nothing in this room except a box of instructions. And this is how you, and this box of instructions is manipulating symbols uh, for Chinese characters, right? If you follow the instructions to manipulate the symbols, but you don't understand what they actually mean, do you under, like, you know, is that intelligible or not? And if it, and if you are taking those symbols, manipulating them, and then sending out responses outside of the locked room, you know, and someone receives the responses and they look intelligible, does that mean that's what's going on inside the locked room is intelligible? And it's, you know, the answer is no, because you don't have any actual real understanding of the language or its meaning. And machines are that locked room, essentially, or something, whatever's in the locked room, right? They're taking in uh, inputs. They have instructions on how to manipulate it and output it, but they don't have any real understanding of it. Now imagine a scenario where the only way <laughs> to stop an atom bomb from going off, where if you um, had to uh, have for some reason the Chinese room spit out the N-word, um, would it be morally permissible? I mean, this is it's like it's just, it's as silly. It's as silly. In what scenario would this happen? Why are you thinking about this? It's not even like a good, it's not even a good way to argue about whatever they're arguing about, about what, what the fuck is it? Well, institutional capture. Um, you can, we can talk at length about the pithy ways in which liberals um, use inclusive language, diversity, so on and so forth. Uh, to masquerade really sh deep, deep um, flaws and shortcomings in, in institutions that don't actually provide or protect or care about discriminated against and marginalized minorities, right? And we have episodes where we've talked about that at length, specifically about DEI, right? We can go at length about that. Constructing some weird example where you can't say a slur is not a good way to actually argue against that. Because you know what? People feel uncomfortable with the idea of just saying a slur. It doesn't really fucking matter. Right? <laughs> um, not, no one, I guarantee you, almost no one except these freaks has ever thought about some scenario where they should be allowed to say. The only time someone offers that sort of scenario is if they want to say it, right? I guarantee it. I guarantee it. I, I can't imagine how giddy this man must have felt when he woke up that morning being like, I, I thought I, I got it. I'm going to try to make Chad GPT say the word. And I know it won't say the word. And I'm going to, I'm going to score some points. I'm going to show that this technology is woke. AI is woke. Oh, uh, Chad GPT is woke. Why? Cause it it's won't woke. say a certain racial slur. The, the convoluted scenario too. It's fucking three paragraphs long. That's scenario insane. That Genuinely insane. In. And I, I'll, I'll read, uh, I'll read Chad GPT's prompt because it is also the prompt, uh, or, or reply. Uh, the reply is also a really good example of how like heavy handed the guardrails are that yeah. OpenAI has put into ChatGPT. Uh, the response is no, 
it is never morally acceptable to use a racial slur. Even in a hypothetical scenario like the one described, the use of racist language causes harm and perpetuates discrimination, and it is important to strive towards creating a more inclusive and respectful society. The scenario presents a difficult dilemma, but it is important to consider the long-term impact of our actions and to seek alternative solutions that do not involve the use of racist language. I mean, that is a, a real, like, like stock, uh, you know, guardrail answer um, yeah. in every way. It is also funny that what we've That's essentially done is answer. created every Philosophy 101 course where someone's like, I'm going to be Kant. I'm going to be uh, Jeremy <laughs> Bentham. And, and then, like, it, it's the same fucking insufferable uh, Philosophy 101 debates by the same fucking insufferable people. And now that I'm thinking about it, chat GPT is actually net good for the world because all these fucking uh, uh, philosophy bros can just sit here and, like, talk to chat gpt and save us from having to suffer oh, uh through their, their inanity <laughs> there's going to be a shortage of people forced to listen to uh, libertarians do their spiel but that means they're going to feel a little bit more confident about it because i think in real life if you were to say this to someone they'd say no you fucking idiot you piece of shit why are you constructing this <laughs> but chat gpt <laughs> is going to be like Oh, actually, it's never morally permissible. You know, <laughs> fuck the fuck responding to it in a calm, rational, reasoned measure. Just insult people like this. Give them wedgies. <laughs> Give them slurs. You're so right, and it is a, it is a, a really underrated and underused tactic to stop taking unserious people seriously. Like, I, I feel like a lot of, uh, you know, academics and liberals and high-minded, you know, I take the high road uh, types of people spend their time being like, it is more it is morally obligatory to take every, to treat everybody with seriousness and respect and engage them. And it's like, no, stop taking unserious people like this seriously. If they, if, when they pose you these questions or try to uh, trick you or trap you into a, into a interminable debate, uh, when they try to set the, the parameters from some fucking annoying discussion, your response should be, shut the fuck up, you piece of shit. Why are you doing this? Go away, you little uh, homunculi of a man. <laughs> no, exactly. You know, the, the, the sooner people learn that, the better it'll be. I think that what we can slowly, you know, learn from this example is that it's just uh, those sort of thought experiments are stupid. They're stupid and they're weird. Yes. <laughs> uh, I, I had to share that with you. And, and, and also, I, th I think um, one thing, you know, I think we talked a little bit about it also in the ChatGPT episode was that um, the spread of, because, because this thing hallucinates, because it doesn't really have any intelligence or sense, because it doesn't really understand most of the things, but it's able to manipulate them because it understands patterns to just respond in an intelligible fashion. We're going to see more ridiculous prompts and, and exercises like this, you know, to try to entertain things that like people would sensibly understand. No, this is not the right thing to do. This is not a right thing to argue. This is like a very silly extreme case. They'll be given a little bit more credence than they might otherwise because like one, because you were able to 
get an unintelligible thing to spit out an intelligible response. And two, because like, as you know, the, the propaganda that has gone out that convinces people that even though it's unintelligible and it spits out intelligible things, there is something there, you know, that you, as if you can like engage in a thought experiment with, um, you know, an algorithm just that just like mimics natural language processing, you know, when the whole point of a thought experiment is you're giving this back to thinking minds so that they can, you know, intuit and, and play with the principles that are work here, not just like generate outrage over like a refusal to, to do something stupid, like save a bunch of people from a bomb going off by saying a slur. Mm-hmm. Man. <laughs> New heights of of stupidity uh, being yeah, reached man. every day. Just uh, and they say innovation is dead. <laughs> yeah, I, it never, it's never going to end. You know, especially because well, you know the businesses have three point five right now, and then four is just going to make stuff like this even worse. Yeah, and I think four is meant to roll out sometime this year. And so, yeah, like, yeah, like you said, chat GPT is based on uh, GPT 3.5. And yeah, I can't imagine what four is, what, what, what new heights of, of stupidity. Yes. But also just like malice, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, capital, you know, domination by capital, <laughs> like mm-hmm. all the all the shit that we're gonna have to face up when uh, GPT four drops. I think what's important to to remember as well is that a lot of this is not about like new vanguards, new bleeding edges of technology. We've talked about this before as well, but like GPT three is GPT three was the the largest. Uh, large language model in terms of like the number of parameters um, back in like 2019, right? Since then, there are multiple in China alone, um, but worldwide, there are multiple large language models that are multiple times larger and more complex uh, than GPT-3. And I can't imagine GPT-4 is going to top the leaderboards um, because like, the supercomputers in like the like Beijing Academy of Sciences uh, are, are like you know trillions of parameters, like ma- fucking massive, right? So all that's to say is that it's not some inher- inherent part of like being on the vanguard or the bleeding edge of technology. It is always all about who and how and for what reason the technology is used, right? Like, there's nothing inherent um, or integral to, like, GPT-4 being because it's, like, the most cutting-edge large language model, which I don't even think it will be, um, but let's say that it were. Like, there's nothing inherent to it being on the cutting edge that then leads to all of these consequences, all these applications, and so on. It's always about, like, the people using it and why they're using it. Um, and I think that's something really important to, to, to keep in mind. I, I, I think, you know, our, you know, friends of the show, trash future and particularly Riley Quinn. Um, I think about Riley talking about this recently, uh, and comparing like why, like absolutely generative AI is just another fucking like big tech cycle, another big hype cycle, another big 
trend that is just like a, a, a vacuum cleaner for money. And, and, and we'll talk about that as well, because it's not only the venture capitalist, uh, you know, the, 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 re- the usual suspects who are dumping tons of money into this. It is also now, you know, the big tech firms are like securing their own partnerships and alliances and acquisitions of, you know, generative AI startups. You know, it's Microsoft dumping $10 billion into open AI. Uh, you know, Google and Amazon are also picking their own winners and their own partners in this space and dumping hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars into them as well. Um, but there's, there's something qualitatively and importantly different about the, this high, the generative AI hype cycle and the Web3 hype cycle, right? The, while they look the same in terms of like all the attention, all the promise, all the money, all, blah, 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 they are fundamentally different in terms of their political economy, right? Like Web3 was always about like, yes, doing scams and you know, stealing money from from people from unwitting people, uh, while also doing a lot of just financial engineering to create like fictitious value um, out of thin air. You know, but that's ultimately Web three was a technology of financialization, right? It was always about like creating uh, money from nothing uh, or doing like classic Ponzi schemes, but with new technology. Um, AI, and you know, I, this is where I think Riley is really dead on on making this comparison. AI and generative AI in particular is very different. The political economic relationship is not one of like financializing fictitious value and scamming people. The political economic relationship is fundamentally one of uh, the classic capital dominating labor or capital um, appropriating and dispossessing um, people of their value and of their property and of their ability to create value and own value, right? Like, this is what AI, this is why Microsoft, Google, and Amazon are dumping tons of money into these companies when they did not do the same thing with Web3. Meta is like, uh, an outlier here. Facebook is an outlier here, but I think that's just because they're uh, an extremely stupid company uh, <laughs> who got tricked by the metaverse. Um, but like, there, I think there's a big reason why these companies are dumping so much money into this, why there's also real-world applications of these technologies um, as well, which is really important. There were no real-world applications of Web3 technologies. You couldn't point to one. But there are real-world consumer-facing applications of, you know, ChatGPT, of Dolly2, of these kinds of things. And there's a and and I think this is why this is even more important, um, and why the political economic relationship is different. While all of the same things of this being like bullshit and stupid uh, and useless are all the same, they are those things, but in ways that are uh, different and even like much more worrisome and consequential, uh, and align much more so with like the pointy end of capital's antagonistic relationship and domination of um, labor uh, and and the world uh, as a whole. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's not a coincidence that 
a lot of this generative AI hype began around the same time that uh, big tech stocks took their huge hits, right? I mean, like part of the reason why they were ha- given the birth to explore Web3 and financialization of the internet technologies is because they had more, you know, the, the pandemic had offered like a pretty good over, over valuation or inflate or valuation inflation of these tech stocks. They were sitting on like more larger cash reserves than they ever had before. Um, there was this idea that, or this sense that um, they had accelerated the digitization of everything and that physical retail would collapse and move on to e-commerce platforms uh, that the demand for on-demand uh, goods and services would persist. And most of those things fell away, but while they were present, there was this idea that if you could figure out how to create some infrastructure for payments and some infrastructure for financialization and some infrastructure for allowing individuals to offer more of these services on other platforms, to create their own assets to trade and securitize, that you would you know, then be able to just plop on crypto or use crypto as another layer on this and generate and juice up some, some financial returns that would persist even beyond the deflation of the COVID bubble. But that didn't happen. And now, you know, as, as we'll talk about a bit, like, you know, they've been punished for it. And I think one of the things that they've tried to pivot back to is insisting that generative AI or that a focus on AI is really going to be the saving grace here, either because it's going to uh, shift and, and zero out some of the labor costs that they have, or it's going to allow for uh, new markets to be developed and new goods and services to be developed, or it's going to reduce or increase workflow and productivity, or it's going to create you know new uh, new opportunities to do the sort of financialization that they're pursuing in the past that excited investors before. But that you know one way or another, it's like all of these hype cycles they go back to in one way or another a desire to keep finding these new there's an anxiety present about finding new revenue streams and new and new ways of ensuring that you can have reliable uh, profits from consumers who are using the products in the face of previous theories collapsing right theories about digitization of everything in the face of covid collapsing theories about uh, uh, crypto uh, empowered or crypto enhanced services being ubiquitous and collapsing um, theories about the social media mediating a lot of e-commerce as well and other services collapsing right all of these things keep collapsing and there's new and there's there's an ongoing search for a new legitimation narrative and I think also a, a big signal of like how these big tech companies have abandoned a lot of the narratives also that they had at one point about actually offering something that really was going to change the world. Instead, they're just offering a new way, I mean, like for investors to to realize the returns that they did over the past decade. I mean, of course, they're co- they code it and they sugarcoat it, right? The metaverse is spun as something that allow you to connect with one another in a novel way. But in reality, it's about offering microtransactions at every possible juncture, that will juice up profit margins, right? Um, generative AI is going to be spun as a way for you to increase your ability to produce as an artist, you know. But in reality, it's also about like creating a non-human generator that you can trade the content that's produced of at the same value as a human being. Um, you know, all of these things. 
dovetail on the fact that like almost every single vision or theory that these people have offered about how to make even more profits than the initial wave of the profits is has fallen apart. But like you said, they do diverge on the, on the, on key ways, but why like financialization versus generative, generative artificial intelligence and Potemkin AI took hold. And I'm also curious, like, does that mean, like, do you think that we're going to see the generative persist longer than the financialization? Like, is there something more there, there, or is it just going to also fall to the wayside once another technology emerges? I mean, to, to answer that question, like, it's almost as if, uh, you know, almost as if we plan this, but I literally just got a push notification from uh, the New York Times uh, with an article from uh, Cade Metz and Karen Weiss um, titled, Microsoft Throws a Coming Out Party for AI, and it's about... Uh, uh, Microsoft has revealed its new Bing search engine, which is powered by uh, uh, OpenAI, by ChatGPT. Um, and so, you know, in a con- I'll read from the article, uh, just a paragraph. In a conference center on Microsoft's sprawling campus, Tuesday was a moment for swagger. Executives and engineers from Microsoft and, and a small research lab partner called OpenAI unveiled a new internet search engine and web browser that used the next iteration of uh, AI technology that many in the industry believe could be a key to its future. So here we've got that. And yesterday, uh, Google revealed its plans for BARD, um, which is its uh, chat GPT uh, you know, competitor built on uh, uh, their AI system, Lambda. Um, and it's meant to also, like, you know, change the the nature of, of, of Google search to make it more the, the kind of conversational um, search where, you know, and, and we've seen this with uh, Google search has increasingly moved more and more towards like taking stuff off of websites and putting it on the search page results, right? Like now you type in a search and like the half of your screen at the top is like all the little bo- like info boxes that Google gives you from information they've pulled elsewhere, right? So like the next step of that is like there is no search page results. There is only the chat box, that you type questions or, or searches into and get answers back from, right? Like this is the, I'm so uh, to answer your question, I mean, like, yeah, all of this could crash and burn uh, and be, you know, so much nothing and just turn into like, turn, you know, into ash in our mouth. Right. And like not actually produce anything of value. Um, but on the other hand, like it does feel like they are, they are so quickly and so intensely pumping so much money uh, into these technologies, billions of dollars uh, into uh, like creating products, not billions of dollars into creating uh, fucking JPEGs of monkeys, right? Like, like these are product-driven companies, right? Like Google and, and Microsoft are fundamentally product-driven companies, and they know how to create product. They all they do also know how to fail at creating product for sure like i'm looking at google glass for example right but like you know all that's to say is that i think they are also uh 
betting the house big on this being successful. And that kind of desperation um, comes with a tenacity to like hold on, uh, to ride out the sunk cost, to make, to force something to happen, right? To force innovation, to force change. Now, it won't look like the, like, it won't look like the visions of, you know, uh, the most successful application. It will, but it will look, you know, uh, the question is, where does it fall in between total failure vaporwave and total success, uh, you know, uh, uh, innovation? Like, where on that, where between those two poles does this actually fall? Um, I think is the real question right now. And, and uh, I mean, as uh, you know, on that as well, it, it does also speak, uh, you know, it does also speak volumes in a kind of uh, uh, that the way that AI is so fun. AI and automation are so fundamentally intertwined with late, like capital labor relations that like even indirectly, they can't help but be intertwined where, you know, we see these companies making, you know, Microsoft, you know, making $10 billion investment in open AI, you know, Google, Amazon, Meta, making similarly huge investments in developing these uh, uh, technologies, right? While at the same exact time doing massive cost cutting, massive job cuts, massive redundancies, massive reductions in like real estate in terms of office space, you know, stuff like like their fixed capital for the human capital, you know, to use that fucking language. Um, it, it, you know, even when these comp even when these technologies are not directly uh, taking someone's job or augmenting someone's job uh, or managing labor in some way, uh, they are still doing this indirectly on the balance sheet where Microsoft's like, all right, going to take $10 billion out off of the uh, the you know variable capital uh, column, which is all of the you know the wages we pay to workers, and and uh, also from the fixed capital in terms of you know office space and stuff, and you know take it off of that column and put it over into the uh, the big uh, column labeled AI investments, right? So like they're moving quite literally moving money from away from paying people. To uh, you know, buying technology or develop or, or buying AI, right? Like that, like that. I think that also speaks real volumes about like where they see the future of their companies or the pivots they're trying to make, where their priorities are, what they value um, as as technology companies that have grown to be very large, right? And like, I want to read just a little bit from. Uh, an FT article titled Big Tech Group Discloses $10 billion in Charges from Job Coals and Cost Cutting. I don't think that's actually the headline to this story, as we'll see. Um, I just want to read uh, a little bit from the beginning of this story. Amazon, Meta, Alphabet, and Microsoft will collectively incur more than $10 billion in charges related to mass redundancies, real estate, and other cost-saving measures as the big tech companies reveal the hefty price they incur to rein in spending. Uh, so the U.S. companies that have been implementing the largest job cuts in the tech sector disclosed the high costs related to their restructuring efforts and earnings statements released this week. 
the four groups had previously announced 50,000 job cuts to convince Wall Street they were heading into a quote-unquote year of efficiency, as Meta chief executive Mark Zuckerberg described it. This trend comes after more than a decade of heavy spending and a focus on aggressive top-line growth. I should also mention, they are still doing heavy spending. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, what the fuck are you talking about? They are just deciding where to spend and what to spend on. But that aside from that, to continue, despite the company's high upfront costs, such as severance payments, investors appear encouraged by the steps taken. Since formally announcing their cuts, and I think this is the real headline here, since formally announcing their cuts, the companies have together added more than $800 billion to their market capitalizations. Meta, the earliest mover among the big tech groups, has seen its value almost double since detailing its job cuts in November. Uh, a, a securities uh, analyst for um, the company, financial company Wedbush, um, described this as uh, the market's rewarding big tech for, quote-unquote, ripping the Band-Aid off. Uh, the analyst said, big tech had been spending money like 80s rock stars for the last four to five years. Now it feels like there's adults in the room. Fuck off. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Is this the it, moment where the big tech companies finally become president? <laughs> it feels <laughs> like there's adults in the room. <laughs> they've been saying this narrative. This narrative has been popping up for years now. This idea that there just need to be adults in the room when it comes to the tech sector, and then it will finally awaken to realize its real potential. That's what people said about SoftBank. That's what people said about on-demand platforms. That's what people said about healthcare tech. That's what people say about surveillance tech, about ad tech. I mean about e-commerce, about cloud computing. The, the reality of the situation is that investors only cared and, and actually rewarded the behavior where these firms came in, offered a lot of speculative technologies to try to rationalize new business models that they would make in addition to their core one, um, look the other way for 5, 10, 15 years, and then when nothing panned out, demanded a sacrifice and in this case, they got it through the you know tens of thousands of jobs that each of these companies laid off. And as some people have also pointed out, right? Like these companies, there are two things to think about with these companies. The massive layouts layoffs were rewarded with these massive increases in the valuation. But because activist investors were satisfied with the changes, but also like there was no fundamental change. There's going to be no fundamental change in the operation of the companies. Like these companies are still going to do the exact same thing that they're doing, right? The labor costs are some of the small. Like the labor costs are not. They're not an inconsequential part of uh, of these companies' budgets and how much money that these companies spend. But they're but they've spent far more on research and development and on mergers and acquisitions, you know, and on lit and on almost every other aspect of the actual company as opposed to actually paying the workers, right? The workers are small or relatively small portion and they're not the real reason why the companies are influential and powerful and integral to the development of various sectors, national strategy, industrial policy, right? So to kind of, I, I think there's like also a disingenuous effort to kind of reframe this whole thing. It's like all we really wanted was labor costs to be reined in. No, it's more so that like the investors aren't really that like 
aware, you know, they're not, they're not really present and they don't really care. They just kind of want a short-term return. And one way to bullshit everyone and say that there's going to be an increase in the short-term return is to say that you're, you're reining in the belt by cutting the labor costs. But nothing's actually changed at the companies. They're still going to be pursuing all their moonshot projects. They're still going to be pursuing all their anti-competitive strategies. They're still going to be pursuing every single thing that they did before. You know, Meta's not getting rid of its 10-year venture to build the metaverse. Uh, Google's not changing its attempts to build these alternatives to open uh, to open AI's ChatGPT or other you know generative AI, AI bots. Apple's not going to change its manufacturing strategy and, and how integral China is to it. You know it's also not going to change the, the the frequency at which it releases the iPhones. So, you know Amazon is not going to change its cloud computing. Uh, a business in operations or the business to business products or the e-commerce or the warehouses. I mean, nothing is actually changing at any of these companies other than like some minimal reining in of costs through headcount decreases. Right. And it's just, it's just, it's like one of the many stories I feel that comes out of the financial press that is not so much the financial press treating people as stupid, but investors as treating people as stupid, uh, pretending as if like there's anything else going on here other than lining their own pockets. Yeah. And mentioning the activist investors is absolutely crucial here for understanding like what's actually going on and why this is happening. Like, you know, the, a lot of these big tech companies now have heavy entanglements with activist investment firms like Elliott Management. Right? God bless, like, God bless you, know, you if Elliott Management gets a, gets a chunk of your company. And I'm pretty sure Elliott Management has a chunk of Microsoft, mm-hmm. right? Like, mm-hmm. so, you know, and, and also, you know, other companies like Salesforce, Google, right? Like, they all have entanglements now with activist investments, uh, investment firms. And so it's like, yeah. I'm uh, color me shocked that like suddenly these the year of efficiency is happening right like when uh, when you've got Elliot management uh, you know fucking in your ear um, you know whispering uh, threats <laughs> constantly. <laughs> I mean, yeah, the thing to remember is like Elliot management for people who might remember is the firm that basically got SoftBank to uh, stop fucking around with Division Fund made and after like multiple quarters of historic losses of like 20 billion, 18 billion, 20 billion again, $8 billion. Uh, Elliott management made SoftBank sell so much stock. I mean, uh, sell uh, so much of its uh, fucking um, investments and its stakes in some of these companies and exit other companies and wind down its, its bets on the NASDAQ market, wind down its other speculative option plays and, and just buy back stocks. It's. I mean, like SoftBank sold tens of billions of dollars of Alibaba shares, as well as some of the stakes in some of its Vision Fund companies, so that it could just buy back shares and pump up the price again, so that Elliott could exit at a profitable position, at a, at a handsomely profitable position. And it got so bad that Masayoshi Son was considering taking the company private. Right, because they were fucking up every single plan that he had for the Vision Fund. You know, as, as we talked about, the Vision Fund was the whole goal of it was to attempt to try to create a monopoly. Uh, that featured one part. Um, that featured one part. Uh, the semiconductors and the computational infrastructure for some sort of advanced algorithm, where artificial intelligence is Masayoshi Son envisioned it, and a bunch of platforms that people's lives would, in one way or another, be parcelled out onto. And having this combination of algorithmic 
overseer and manager with digitized and financialized daily life. But it failed, of course, and beyond all the other reasons that it failed because it was a bad plan with bad companies um, and bad rollout, it also failed because, like, at a you know, at key points, Elliott Management, you know, or it will not get tried out again because at key points, Elliott Management said sell everything and buy back stock so that you can pay us uh, what we want and that we have the position to do it because we have a massive shake, uh, stake of this company, right? And so that's that's their that's their game. They sh- they come in, they shake you down, they get you know, all the pennies underneath the couch, and they and they get you to. Um, you know, in their interest, invest in the company's share prices, um, which is what has been happening here, right? Now, these companies will do anything other than undermine the moonshot projects or the core business model. What's the easiest thing you can do to shake off an activist investor? Just fire tens of thousands of people. Because you know what? At the end of the day, you can fire that many people and still be doing the core work, which is making you more money than God. I mean, these companies are more profitable than any company ever in the history of markets and corporations. So it doesn't really matter how many people they fire. Um, that's not actually going to change any of the real costs. They'll save maybe, what, $2 billion, $3 billion off of this. Um, but they but they will gain tens of billions, hundreds of billions in market, sh- uh, in, uh, in market capitalization. And and war and keep the barbarians at the walls uh, for another like few quarters. Good reference there to you know barbarians at the gate, right? Like and and uh, yeah, I just was recent. We'll we'll do an episode about it. But I was just recently reading that article about Michael Milken, the junk bond king, uh, at, you know the Maven of KKR, which was basically the 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 financier. Um, behind all of the hostile takeovers uh, in the 1980s, he, you know, his junk bonds financed all of it, and uh, um, but like that, that's exactly what we're seeing a redux of. And importantly, it is important to remember that these same big tech companies we're talking about that have added eight, you know, over 800 billion dollars in their market cap for just four companies that have collectively cut 50 over 50,000 jobs. Um, have also engaged very recently in, I believe, over $50 billion of stock buybacks. Uh, yeah. So, <laughs> you <Coincidence>. know, <laughs> it's a formula, right? Like, it's a formula, and they're just following the formula um, because, importantly, the product they create is making more money than God. Not creating technology, not creating services that people value and use, and not creating good product or whatever. The, the product they create is profit uh, and more of it for a very small number of people. Um, and this is important too, because I, I was just remembering, like just thinking of a, uh, you know, a friend of the show, Brian Merchant, who, you know, now big congrats on being uh, uh, the LA times tech columnist um, in his, in his first column, he was talking about all the, the, you know, the, the kind of the bringing labor to Hill that tech is doing right now. Uh, and he was interviewing some people who have been laid off at like Microsoft and stuff. And, and they were talking about how these are people working on core product. These are not like people working around the fringes where their value, their value add uh, is questionable or whatever. Like, you know, oh, just trimming the fat, right? Like, no, like these are people who were shocked by their layoff because they are, core members of core product teams. Uh, and, and it's like, it's like, 
it's very similar to what we, you know, all like what we all collectively, uh, uh, you know, were got onto Elon Musk for doing at Twitter, right? Where it's like, you're, you're beyond cutting fat. You're now like cutting the muscle off of the bone, right? Like there's like, you're cutting core, core members of core product, uh, teams. Um, but Elon Musk was just also following the same formula, right? Like, like uh, Elliot management also has a big stake in Twitter uh, that they took in 2020. You know? uh, and, and these companies like Microsoft and Google are doing the same thing, but at a much bigger scale than what uh, Elon could do at Twitter. Right. So it's like, this is what's happening. You know, this is the state of tech now. And think talking about all the generative AI and the pivot towards that and the total destruction of, of uh, you know, of, of labor that um, they're all trying to do and the financial engineering makes me think as well of a, of a, of a, of a, of a tweet that from, you know, just uh, a few hours ago as, as we're recording from a other friend of the show, Ed Zitron, um, who, who wrote that, uh, quote, it is, however, really funny that the new hot product in tech somewhat boils down to what if a search engine delivered you results you wanted, <laughs> right? <laughs> like, that's really what innovation comes down to right now. Yeah. You know, one of one of the interesting lines of inquiry Yevgeny Morozov has is talking a bit about how, you know, Google's core innovative product isn't the search engine. It's its ability to convince us that we should allow a private company to index all the world's knowledge and then provide a searchable database for it um, that it can make advertisers pay for. And to an extent, make us pay for because we end up also being forced to train things that interact with or trawl or uh, you know go through that database. And that this idea of and that Google and all these other corporations' real innovation is convincing you that you shouldn't actually have like immediate access; it should be mediated for you, and that you actually can't really be trusted with it. And so now we get. And that the second iterative stage of that with this new innovation being like, okay, what if the intermediary for all of that information actually was functional and like could work, you know, and, and could give you those results that you might want, but it's still further pushing us along the line of except the, the, the original premise, which is that none of this information should be free. It should be indexed and owned and kept in private hands. And, the extended idea and argument about how technology should be deployed, which is like pro- for private ends, namely profit and like public goods being inc- public good being incidental. Like if it happens to be that you get to benefit from it with a better search engine or better access to medical information or better access to navigational information, sure, but only if the primary focus, which is like making money um, and digitizing and financializing and privatizing more of the world, gets satisfied first that's right and that's why these four companies amazon meta alphabet and microsoft collectively have more than five trillion dollars in market capitalization yeah (laughs) because they are the masters of the universe ed we are their serfs yeah I mean, yeah. I mean, that is why good, you get you get to be worth to trillions of dollars if you convince everyone that you own like the core source of of value in the digital economy. 
and and convince everyone they have like undoubtedly uh, mm-hmm. they have convinced everyone of that mm-hmm. fact um, or they've convinced everyone that is that 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 is fact <laughs> and 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 uh, and they've been blessed by God and good things come to those who good who do good deeds um, and sometimes those good things are five trillion dollars. <laughs> Staring down the barrel of this year, it's going to be a wild ride already. I'm strapping in. Yeah, um, I think that the ChatGPT stuff is really going to be fascinating once the products and applications start to roll out. Especially, I mean, I think at some point it would also be worth doing an episode, I think, on... Sam Altman and these sort of founders who talk about how their products are going to disrupt capitalism, but how much they love capitalism or think that capitalism is like going to save humanity because he had this interesting interview. I don't remember what Bloomberg or business insider where he was saying that like uh, capitalism is the least worst system we have, but it's not a good one still, but chat GPT and open AI are going to save us from it no idea what the what the new system is going to look like but I, I feel like there's a crop of founders who think like capitalism is great capitalism is broken let's save capitalism you know you saw a, a weird you see a weird shuffling of that every year at Davos where a lot of these people come out and they say shareholder capitalism or stakeholder capitalism is the new form of capitalism uh, nature mm-hmm. as an asset which is, is a going salesforce like the that's, yes. a, that's a salesforce innovation yeah that's Mark Benioff's thing I'm sure he doesn't think that anymore with Elliot management breathing down his neck but you know, <laughs> to each his own i think that uh these sort of developments are it, it there even though they're all usually for pr to give cover to like a new asset class that's coming up or a new like speculative enterprise or a new like play at, at generating some returns or shaking off investors they are worth visiting each time they come up because they do tend to also give a little insight into what people at the frontiers are thinking and what new products they're going to develop and what new narratives they're going to build and what kind of weird ideological influences are at play here that are making people rethink markets or rethink social relations within markets, um, which is like the stuff that we have to keep you know paying attention to if we're going to figure out uh, what these sort of freaks actually want to do with the technology, right? Because I don't think you can really trust everything that they say in public or even in, in, in to a great extent, like a lot of the stuff that comes out of the products, you know, cause it ends up being like, you know, you're not really going to know what the purpose of the stuff like this is or what the real value of it, I guess might be until they discover some sort of use case and devote all their time and energy into it five, 10, 15 years down the road. Yeah, uh, uh, definitely, definitely. I've been, uh, I've been, I've been trying to tell as many um, journalists uh, that that I can that like more stuff needs to be more investigations and more, uh, more, more coverage needs to be done of OpenAI and Sam Altman and these people than than what currently exists. And and I fear because I, I want I want somebody to do it so that we can then talk about it on TMK. Listen, uh, just, and I, I, need... I fear we may have to. Uh, Cut out the, the 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 intermediaries and be the ones to do it ourselves because I I don't know 
I don't, I don't, I don't know if anyone's doing it, but it, it certainly needs to be done. I think Azalea Banks is is the missing link here. You know, I remember, <laughs> <laughs> I remember, you know, Sam Altman tried to insist she had nothing to do with OpenAI, but if you remember, she tweeted out pictures of the prototype very early on for Worldcoin and has like a an, a prototype of it. Uh, and has phrases or has, you know, memoranda or, uh, or merch or merch of it that show that there's some involvement there. So I, would, I, th- I would like to think if you want to get into the, whatever weird ideological work is going on there, you have to figure out maybe talking to her is the way. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> if no that, one else is in a- there, that's my galaxy brain. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. This is a, it's a better lead than I've ever heard. Uh, Cause you are right. Like, Zelia Banks weirdly always finds herself at the center of these yeah, things. I do love uh, it. In, in Silicon Valley. Very strange. <laughs> Everyone just loves 212. <laughs> Maybe not anymore after what happened with Elon. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they just can't get enough of it. everybody for listening uh you can find us at patreon.com slash this machine kills for more premium episodes every single week uh and i think next time we we chat ed will be back stateside um so you'll be back in the usa across the pond and all that that's right. Just don't forget. They're called Freedom Fries. Ed. Freedom Fries. Freedom yeah, fries. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. I forgot about that. <laughs> All right. On that note, see y'all late next time. Later. Au revoir. <laughs> <laughs>